So with meditation and maybe especially with, with meditation retreat, uh, we're, we're often looking for ways to evaluate and assess how things are going. We're frequently benchmarking progress, regress. And usually the data that we use to assess how things are going is what's happening at the surface of consciousness. And so, um, you know, kind of monkey mind we like take to be uh, some kind of summary statement about how things are going, what's being transformed, what's happening. And uh, that, that I think is a, is a mistake. And uh, I had a kind of series of images that came to mind as I was reflecting on this. And um, so imagine that uh, Brian and I finally got up the courage to become uh, professional bodybuilders. <laughs> and um, we joined his gym, deluxe membership, and we got our muscle shirts and <laughs> we show up for training the first day and uh, and we like I don't what do you sit in the chair I, anyway we we get <laughs> we get to the bench and we do like one perfect rep and then we like just make eye contact and both know and we just like get up and run over to the mirror and just start posing, you know. (laughs) Series of images more homoerotic than I initially (laughs) registered. (laughs) But... uh, with meditation practice, we <laughs> basically do the same thing. You know, it's like one one breath, and it's like we actually will look like, "Am I freer?" You know, like one mindful breath, like, "All right." And we're, we're the, the kind of data that we're using is just like what's happening at the surface level of the mind. And um, I think it, it's really important to acknowledge that like meditation, uh, bhavana, bhavana, cultivation, cultivation, we're cultivating something. And whatever's happening at the level of the the surface mind, whatever you can see with awareness, 
is, is just like a very small part of the story of what's actually unfolding in the silence. And so um, we can think about all the things that actually are, you are doing, all the things that are being nourished, that are being cultivated and being here, right? The kind of, uh, the sila, just a week of dedicated to, to non-harm and the development of, of patience and energetic effort and uh, courage and kindness. There's, there's so much that's actually being cultivated and we rely exclusively on this, you know, the stability or instability of the, the attention as a way of measuring everything. It's not, it's not fair. And the truth is like, we don't really see the unfolding of the path. The path unfolds, freedom unfolds, but we're not actually there watching it for the most part. Sometimes there are key moments where something happens, where something lets go, and we uh, know that we feel released, free, some kind of freedom. Uh, but, but much of the time is this kind of phenomena where uh, we don't see the maturation actually unfolding. But at some point, we kind of wake up to the fact that we're just not suffering in the same way we remember. And we don't know where the suffering went, how it dissolved, when we let go, what was cultivated. But we find that we're, uh, the heart is, is, uh, is freer. Suzuki Roshi, um, even though you try very hard, the progress you make is little by little. It's not going, uh, it's not like going out in a shower in which you know you, uh, when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible, but actually it's not. When you get wet in a fog, it's very difficult to dry yourself. So we keep going. sometimes discerning a clear progress and sometimes just getting wet in the fog. So tomorrow we're, uh, we're returning to our, um, our regular lives. And uh, there's a question of like, what's the relationship between this, this practice, the retreat practice, the silence and life. 
and uh, there are different perspectives. One from one in one sense and an important sense, they are in you know inseparable. That um, the distinctions we draw between this week and the next week, between this week and the last week, uh, is is uh, are, is artificial. And that all we'll ever know as human beings, all we knew as human beings during this week was sight and sound and emotion and thought. And there's nothing that actually changes that as we move into, uh, into our lives. It's, it will forever be that mix of experiences. Uh, this is Norman Fisher. Uh, when you actually enter the path and go down the road a little way and then wake up one day and realize to your surprise that you're actually committed to this. When that happens, a whole other life comes into view. You find that you've formed your life literally around the practice And you actually begin to forget about the life you thought you wanted, the life you thought you were making, the life you were hoping for, or the life you thought you should have been having. Instead, practice becomes your life and life becomes your practice. Practice is no longer something you do to enhance your life or help it along. It is your life. One day you kind of realize this and you lose the life you thought you wanted or the life you thought you had. But this is very liberating. This is really great. It's wonderful to disappear into your practice. It's wonderful not to have to worry anymore about being someone or something, which is such a struggle. You no longer have to work overtime to avoid life's difficulties. People work their entire lives to avoid life's difficulties, and they're never successful at that. You can give up that effort altogether. You don't have to defend or protect yourself anymore. This is great. I can't tell you how great this is. It's not dramatic. It's not colorful. It's not a big deal. It's very subtle. Maybe nobody even notices. So what do we want to, to bring to this world, to our life? How do we, we want this practice, this training to manifest? Uh, Ram Dass said that the quieter you become, the more you can hear. And so we start to see beauty, we see what we miss, like we see the goodness already here, the goodness to which we've acclimatized. And we also hear uh, our own suffering and we hear 
know, the cries of the world. If we, if we only focus on the subtleties of our experience, um, we can, practice can become self-centered. Even very good practice can be kind of enveloped in a certain kind of self-absorption. And um, this practice is an engaged practice. There There are implications of the silence. There are ethical implications of the silence, of what we know in the silence. And so I remember a teacher meeting where um, a couple teachers from from different different one Bhikkhu Bodhi and another teacher from from a different tradition were were talking about uh, practice and suffering in the world and this other teacher was sort of um, suggesting that uh, kind of like it was enough to just do. Uh, compassion practice, like for let that to be a practice of, of heart cultivation. And I'm, of course, not dismissive of that at all. We've done a lot of it and it's of profound value. But, um, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi kind of shot back at saying like, no, you, you have to do something. You, like, you have to actually live something out. You have to be in, contribute in some way. And it didn't prescribe a particular way, but um, we have to find our way of contributing, a way that doesn't fatigue the heart, that doesn't feel like an addition, that doesn't feel like a burden on our already burdened heart. Now, at the same time, if we're only focused on others, we never see ourselves deeply enough. And so there is this uh, inward and outward focus. So uh, teacher um, heard say something like um, that insight, insight is only the beginning. And sometimes we feel like insight is the culmination, but insight is the beginning. We see something new about ourselves, about suffering, about freedom, but then we actually have to practice our insight. We have to like uh, live according to its dictates, even when that insight feels maybe a little remote. Like, what is it like to feel our way into the memory of an insight? and try to live from that, even though things have changed. It's not so close at hand. And so how do we do this? How do we live or how do we translate retreat? How do we live? Uh, How do we practice insight? And what I want to say is we, we practice it in, in relationship with others, both, both those very close, very near to us in our, in our world and those that we maybe have never met and never will meet. 
we're, we're, we're really widening the uh, scope of uh, ethical concern. So, um, one time I, I was on retreat and uh, I don't know, maybe I've been practicing a, a few years and um, and I was in this like very exuberant phase of of practice. It was kind of like, uh, yeah, just very enthusiastic and kind of dysregulated, but enthusiastic. And, uh, uh, and you know, I, I, I just, I was just, yeah, kind of falling in love with the practice. And, and I asked the teacher, like, why, why isn't this practice, like, why isn't Buddhism evangelical? Like, why are we, why can't I go out and just like, stand on a street corner and yell at people to meditate. Like, like why, tell me, tell me why not to do that. Like, right? And, um, and the response was, um, was, who said Buddhism isn't evangelical? And I'm like, okay. Uh, and then what, uh, what they went on to say was like, um, no, it actually, it, it, it is, but it's a quiet form of evangelism. It's the way that we actually manifest our, our, our uh, practice is, um, has a kind of a blessing for those in our lives and has a natural allure to it and is a kind of uh, advertisement for, for wisdom, for compassion. There's, um, you know, now kind of proliferation of these social network analysis studies that look at the kind of ripple effects of one individual through their social network and the ways in which, you know, it's been documented like the, the kind of, uh, the ripple effects of the happiness of one person, even though they may not have contact with their friend's friend, right? But there's actually discernible effects in, in terms of the way that our emotional lives ripple out. So this is from one, one study. Um, the authors write, uh, human happiness is not merely the province of isolated individuals. The happiness of an individual is associated with the happiness of people up to three degrees removed in the social network. Happiness, in other words, is not merely a function of individual experience, but is also a property of groups of people. Indeed, changes in individual happiness can ripple through social networks, giving rise to clusters of happy and unhappy individuals. So we've been practicing moving inwards and uh, exploring different corners of our own being 
And in some ways that's a very private act and in some ways that is uh, the beginnings of the expanding our empathic capacities. That to attune to another person means means that we must know our experience with vividness to like have a rich, nuanced, felt sense of what it's like for this person or that person. We actually need to have a very kind of clear, equanimous and, and poignant encounter with our, with our own inner life. And as the poignancy of our inner life just comes like crashing down upon us irrevocably, just like so clear how poignant it is being human. This becomes the basis of recognizing and connecting with the hearts of others. After, uh, after 9-11, the Dalai Lama said, um, Others are waiting for you now. They are looking to you for guidance, for help, for courage, for strength, for understanding, and for assurance at this hour. Most of all, they are looking to you for love. My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. So we're developing um, a kind of uh, empathic connection. And at the same time, we're not presuming to know the particularities of another person. And, um, you know, it's my hope that that Dawn and Brian and I have been uh, adequately respectful of both what is Uh, shared in experience, shared maybe by all of us in experience, and also honoring of the particularities of your hearts and mind and cultural experience and conditioning and privilege and many factors. So in, in relationship, we're, we're honoring the universal and the particular. We're bringing, you know, really sila samadhi panya into, into relationship, the kind of um, just the, the ethical guidelines around non, non-harming. You know, we talked in the, uh, in the metta practice about, about being a refuge, being safe for other beings. Of, uh, and our speech is, you know, is uh, quite central in that, very powerful. And so attending to, to the quality of our speech in our lives Uh, And the general kind of rubric is like true, kind, timely. Uh, That that is quite powerful. Like I really, 
I really notice it when I'm deviating from that. And there's a place for honest and maybe sometimes very difficult conversation. We don't have to uh, sort of gloss over problems or something. We can speak honestly, uh, but we want to like mind that line that separates, uh, you know, like honest expression from, you know, malicious speech. And uh, it has a, it has a kind of corrosive effect. I can feel it in me because I'm like, uh, sometimes just will use like just some idea, like just harsh, harsh kind of language. And it feels okay in the moment, but there's a kind of feedback uh, that happens. And I think over time we get, we get better and better at the feedback loop becomes shorter and shorter. We actually can sense like immediately the misalignment in our ethical conduct when we're not uh, um, meeting our own expectations. Practicing, you know, like practicing an interaction is so, um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, so much possibility and it's so intense. Like we walk around pretending like it's not a big deal to like, talk to other humans, but it's like totally a big deal. Like maybe you even got that during your little mindful milling, right? It's like, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's intense. I mean, we, in, uh, in a, a, a retreat, a training retreat, uh, we, the Brian and I, and we're, we're at. Um, at some point, the the teachers had us like pair up with with you know just a dyad, and I don't know how long they held us in the silence, but we were just like looking in each other's eyes for I think like fifteen minutes, and um, and it was like. It was, and it was, I was with a close, close friend and somebody I really care a lot about and have a very easy relationship with. And, um, you know, but like in the intimacy of those minutes, it felt like adultery or something. Like it felt like, like, like just completely illegal how intimate the connection was, right? And we say, okay, yeah, well, you don't gaze into people's eyes for 15 minutes normally. But the truth is, like, we can handle about, like, three seconds of, you know, like, yeah, I could, I could look at them for, like, three <laughs> seconds, and then things are going to get intense, right? And uh, so... We're only ever three seconds away from that in all of our interactions. Like, that's the razor's edge on which we're living. 
and yet we still just like are so casual. Like, oh yeah, we'll just we'll talk. You know, like it's a big deal. It's like we are social creatures, and there is like so much sensitivity in all of this, and we actually get to see like the 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 wisdom, the way wisdom can function in our interpersonal relationships by, uh, you know, part of what's happening in that dyadic eye contact is a very poignant evocation of the sense of self. And so there's like the, the intense arising of, you know, this acute self-consciousness and the kind of like the sense of being gazed upon and then we are gazing and there's this kind of uh, bouncing back of attention, this pinballing of attention between the other and one's own self-consciousness and the, the kind of solidity of the self is, um, uh, is, is a kind of, is a, it's a burden, it's a burden. Not only does it actually burden ourselves and is a cause of suffering, but it, it actually can short circuit the, the depth of intimacy that we can have with others when we let go. And our own kind of egoic, you know, we think of, uh, we, we suffer, we're, we suffer at the hands of our egoic identification. But importantly, in interactions, the tightness with which we hold ourselves, with which we define ourselves, leaks out and impinges upon the freedom of others. To the extent that we are insistent on viewing ourselves in a particular way, uh, we, we are, are creating a kind of burden on the other to be complicit with that. And so um, this aspiration to be a refuge, to be a refuge, to be safe for other beings, that actually necessitates a certain amount of letting go of self-view, of softening of self-view, of holding ourselves more gently, more flexibly. Because where there is ego, there is the possibility of defensiveness. And where there is defensiveness, there is the possibility of aggression. And that is, uh, unsettles the field of connection, of intimacy. And so, um, we, we do this practice and we become, we come to, to hold ourselves with, uh, yeah, there's so many uh, 
aspects of it, but we come to hold ourselves in a more fluid way. That uh, there's 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 uh, a kind of the emotional charge has been drained from the points of identification of I am this, I am not that. It's like those ideas have arisen enough. We've seen them with enough clarity. We've let the emotion discharge enough that they don't carry the same burden. We don't have to stand guard at the gates of who we think we are. And then these teachings on, on, uh, on self, not self, uh, there are also implications for, it's like also not other in the sense that um, we often, in the same way we imagine ourselves as having the center, a center point and uh, a kind of the ground that must be protected as me, who I am, we also essentialize the other and make them something. And sometimes we try to hang our love or our hate on the coat hook of their self on the center of their being. But the Buddha said it, it's not there. There's no place to hang the love, the hate. But we can still deeply love them. We can still deeply love them, but this insight makes hatred less and less tenable. So this is um, our relational life and in the, in the, the narrow sense. But um, what about in the, the kind of larger, larger world? There have been some critiques of, uh, of empathy in, in the kind of research, psychological literature. Um, empathy is like usually celebrated and has a lot of positive values, but it has some distorting effects. It has the effects of, um, for example, there's in-group favoritism with empathy you're more likely to empathize with somebody that we think is like us. And they're kind of like proximity effects. So the person suffering right here is more moving to me than, uh, you know, a, a child on a distant continent. But suffering is suffering. And we're widening the scope of our care, the, the, the circle of empathy as it's been called. Shantideva, uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, um, I think said, said something like, um, 
like mind speaking to to their own mind like mind please understand you do not belong to me and i took that to mean that um that that the devotion was so was so deep to the to compassion that not even uh, that not even their mind belonged to them. So, what's a, a kind of a, a modern version of the Bodhisattva? The, the, the one who, who vows to, uh, um, to, to dedicate their life to the alleviation of suffering. And I think there are a lot, of, a lot of examples, a lot of ways that compassion can take its form in the world. Um, but I wanna share something um, that's, that the logic of which has been quite compelling to me in these last few minutes. So years ago when I was in college, I read a, a philosophical book that sort of asked the question, um, given what $100 does for me and given what $100 does for um, purchasing uh, rehydration kits in Africa to save children from, from dying of diarrheal diseases, given what $100 does there, how can you, Matthew, justify your life? How can you justify the way you live. And that introduced a certain kind of um, uh, incoherence into my moral life because I didn't change how I was living dramatically. I didn't change how I was spending money and I didn't have much money, but I, I um, wasn't using it on things that I needed. And that sense of like, I can no longer really fully justify my life, my ethical life. Like, I want to think of myself as good. And I felt like I couldn't justify my life exactly. And so I forgot about it for some time, but it, it was kind of there in my mind. And the, the questions that are articulated in that book have like crystallized in the form of a, of a movement that on the one hand appears to be a kind of uh, 
dry and rationalistic or something, but, but to me is, is a kind of, represents the spirit of the bodhisattva vow in a very compelling, beautiful way. So, um, uh, the question asked by this movement, effective altruism, is what's the most good I can do with my life? And then sets about answering it in a methodical way. So the, the group writes, um, most of us want to make a difference. We see suffering, injustice, and death and are moved to do something about them. But working out what that something is, let alone doing it, is a difficult problem. Which cause should you support if you really want to make a difference? What career choices will help you make a significant contribution? Which charities will use your donation effectively? If you don't choose well, you risk wasting time and money. But if you choose wisely, you have a tremendous chance to improve the world. Effective altruism is the use of high quality evidence and careful reasoning to work out how to help others as much as possible. Its purpose is to help you figure out how you can do the most good. If you're reading this, then you are probably astonishingly wealthy in global terms. For example, if you earn the typical income in the U.S. and donate 10% of earnings each year to the Against Malaria Foundation, you'll probably save dozens of lives over your lifetime. This is such an astonishing fact that it's hard to appreciate. Imagine if one day you saw a building burning kicked the door down, ran in, and rescued a small child. You'd feel like a hero. It would be one of the most important days of your life. What the evidence shows is that you can do that every one or two years for the rest of your working life. So we can ask the question, like, what, what can I do? And we don't have to get into debates about how much or what's, you know, where it stops. We just ask the question, and we start. We start somewhere in some way that feels like we can do, our heart can bear. And as we develop more and more resource, as the heart becomes bigger, uh, we can do more. And we, uh, we practice uh, compassion up close 
in interactions and with the wider community. Um, um, not, not as a kind of transaction, not to, for some kind of acknowledgement, but because it's our way, it's our path. This is, uh, again, Norman Fisher in uh, Reflections on Compassion. It says, um, uh, don't, don't expect applause. Although we can enjoy the applause that we will probably receive for practicing it. Practice mind training not for the applause, but because we know it's right, we know it's necessary, and anyway, there is no choice. When people applaud us for our wonderful achievements, really what they're applauding is not us and not those achievements. They are applauding life, they are applauding goodness, they are applauding their own lives, they are applauding the human capacity to appreciate something wonderful. So it's good when they applaud, let them applaud, and we will graciously accept it, knowing what their applause really means. Let's just sit. a universe of something like 14 billion years. And here we are in what we call 2017 together. Practicing wisdom compassion.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.